Well, Revelation chapter 19 describes the end of this current age. The revolt launched by Satan finally comes to an end. Realize, we all can know the future. History is no mystery. The final chapter has already been written. And tonight we learn how it all will end, Revelation chapter 19. And it's interesting how this chapter opens. There's a lot of saber rattling on earth. The earth is preparing for war, whereas heaven is preparing for a wedding. Heaven is in full party mode. It's hosting a celebration. John begins chapter 19. After these things, I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Alleluia! Salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. And note this word, Alleluia. Its origins are Hebrew, of course. It's a compound word. Alel means praise. Yah is a contraction for God's name, Yahweh. So put the two together and the word means praise God. Alleluia. God is worthy to be praised. For true and righteous are your judgments because he has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication and he has avenged on her the blood of his servants shed by her. That Babylonian system, the harlot that represented a phony and false religious system. We saw in chapters 17 and 18 the rise of this system. The Antichrist, of course, will claim to be the Savior, but he'll turn out to be a tyrant in contrast to him, to the one who's phony and false. Jesus is true and righteous. He's true. That means he's genuine, not counterfeit, and he's righteous. That means he's faithful, not a liar. Verse 3, again they said, Alleluia. Her smoke rises up forever and ever. Chapter 17 and 18 discuss God's overthrow of this two-headed Babylonian system. You remember Satan through the Antichrist will seize control of a worldwide commerce. And he'll blackmail humanity into worshiping him. And John saw in chapter 18 verse 18 that this evil system will burn to a crisp in a single hour. Here we read. Her smoke rises up forever and ever. It's a testimony to God's righteousness. The earth mourns her loss while heaven shouts hallelujah. And then the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who sat on the throne saying, Amen, hallelujah. You might be interested to note that the word hallelujah appears 24 times in the Hebrew Old Testament. Mostly in the book of Psalms. It's a common explanation, exclamation of praise. But the word appears only four times in the New Testament. And all four times are right here. It's as if God is saving all his hallelujahs for this moment. Hey, a man, as man's rebellion reaches a breaking point on earth, God's praise crescendos in the heavens. For centuries, the heavenly host has watched Satan steal and kill and destroy. Now that he's finally on the ropes, heaven erupts in this praise, this chorus of alleluias. And then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you servants and those who fear him, both small and great. And I heard, as it were, 
the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters, and as the sound of mighty thundering sang. Hallelujah. A voice calls on heaven to praise God, and a mighty roar goes up like a waterfall or like a thunderclap. A great multitude shouts out, Alleluia. Now you know how to say this word in English, but do you know how to pronounce Alleluia in Spanish? For that matter, in Arabic, or in Berber, or in Mandarin, or in German, or in Yoruban? Hey, it's Alleluia in every language. It's the same pronunciation in every tongue, in every dialect. Even heaven shouts alleluias to God. But that's just half of heaven's shout. The triumphant chorus rings out. For the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Earth's impending collapse reminds heaven who it is that ultimately reigns. The Lord is omnipotent or all-powerful. There is no problem God can't solve. Wayne Vallis worked in the White House as a special assistant to Presidents Nixon, Ford, and Reagan. When he finally called it quits, in his resignation, what he wrote was full of despair. He wrote this, I've come to believe there is no ultimate solution to human problems. Hopefully, you can trade more vexing problems for less vexing problems. Isn't that sad? I mean, here's the opinion of a man who spent his whole lifetime in government. The best of humans have no real answers, he concludes. All they do is swap out one problem for another problem. You see, the reason human government is so impotent is because it depends on fallible, frail, foolish humans. Here's earth's only hope. God omnipotent reigns. Today, God sits on his throne in heaven, and he is sovereign over human affairs. For the moment, he's allowing us to run the show, and we're making a pretty good mess of things. He's proving how incapable we are of governing ourselves. But the day is coming when the omnipotent will flex his muscle, when God himself will establish his kingdom on this earth. Verse 7 tells us, Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. Notice this about the greatness of God. He is both omnipotent and yet intimate. He's high, yet he's nigh. He leads, yet he loves. Jesus is not only the king of the jungle, but he's the bridegroom who cherishes and who nurtures his bride. And guess what? You are that bride. You are. If you're a follower of Jesus, you're betrothed. You are destined to be married to the lamb. You know, Hebrew marriage, the Hebrew marriage rites were in three stages. First, there was an engagement. Parents often arranged for their children's marriage. I remember when I was a teenager, I couldn't believe that this ever happened in the history of mankind. But after raising four kids, I can see now how it's a really great idea. But parents would often prearrange their kids' marriage. The second stage was a betrothal. The couple met at the bride's home to exchange vows. And then the groom would leave to prepare a place for them to live. 
Often he would build a room onto his father's house. From this point on, the couple was legally bound, but the marriage wasn't consummated until the wedding feast, the third stage. The groom would return for his bride. He would sweep her up and take her home. They would celebrate with family and friends at a feast. Then they would enter the bridal chamber to begin their married life. And this is a beautiful overview of Jesus' dealings with his church. Scripture calls you and me the bride of Christ. Our marriage with Jesus was prearranged. We were chosen by him before the foundation of the world. Then when we put our faith in him, we took our vow. We're betrothed to Jesus now and no one else. And Jesus has returned to heaven. In his father's house, there are many mansions or rooms. And he's preparing a place for you. And when it's finished, Jesus has promised to return and to take us to live with him forever. Here we read about the marriage supper. Verse 8 tells us what the bride will wear. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright. The bride of Christ will be dressed to the hilt. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. This past July, Lydia Taylor got married. But rather than shell out big bucks, Lydia knitted her own wedding gown. It took her four months and 100,000 stitches. And here we're told that we too are making our own wedding dress. Hey, when you meet Jesus, you'll be clothed in your own righteous acts. Do you know what that means? That means some of you are going to be married to Jesus Christ for all eternity in your sweatpants and a hoodie. Hey, if you have any fashion sense at all, you can't let that happen. You can't be caught dead in a tattered t-shirt on your wedding day. You need to begin right now serving God with your time and your talents and your money and your efforts and your passion. For all that you do for him now with love in your heart is weaving for you a beautiful wedding gown for this special day. Verse 9 tells us, Then he said to me, Write, blessed or happy are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And here's the big question for us tonight. Have we saved the date? <laughs> Have we saved the date? Now, I know you haven't gotten an exact date. Jesus himself said, no one knows the day or the hour. But are you planning to be there? Are you excited about leaving this world and moving in with Jesus? Hey, this is the next big event on God's calendar, the rapture of the church. When God pours out his judgments on this earth, his church will be in heaven, in heaven's banquet hall, celebrating our marriage to his son. Remember on the eve of his crucifixion, Jesus ate Passover with his disciples, and he talked of this marriage supper. In essence, Jesus toasted his bride. He took the cup, and he drank it with them. And then he told his disciples that he wouldn't drink of this cup again until he drank it with them, his bride, in his kingdom. You remember that passage? 
Well, now in Revelation chapter 19, the marriage is being consummated. The party now has begun. And Jesus and his bride have now, are now drinking together of that cup. They've started to celebrate a love that will last for all eternity. And then he continues. He said to me, these are the true sayings of God. And I fell at his feet to worship him. Now, the hymn here is the mighty angel that John saw back in chapter 18, verse 21. And this angel made an impact on John. For one, he had quite an arm. He threw a huge millstone into the oceans, announcing the fall of Satan's evil systems. In fact, John was so impressed by this angel and so overwhelmed by his revelation that he falls at his feet to worship him. And yet, notice how the angel responds. But he said to me, see that you do not do that. I'm your fellow servant and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. I mean, this angel is appalled at John's worship of him. He's just a servant. He's just God's errand boy, just like John. God alone is worthy of our worship. Oh, angels are awesome. No doubt about it. They're magnificent creatures. See an angel and you might be tempted to worship him, but don't. There's only one angel who craves and relishes worship. And that's the angel Lucifer or Satan, the fallen angel. Well, this angel tells John, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. In other words, the spirit behind scripture, the Bible's underlying theme, the burrow to which every rabbit trail leads is Jesus. Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. The Holy Spirit always intends for the written word to point to the living word, Jesus Christ. And verse 11 shifts from the bridal suite in heaven to a battle scene on earth. John writes, Now I saw heaven opened. Now earlier in Revelation chapter 4 verse 11, or chapter 4 verse 1, I'm sorry, you'll remember that heaven opened to let the church enter. Now heaven opens to let the lion out. John is on location in Israel to cover the final battle. And he's on a hill overlooking the valley of Megiddo. The armies of a worldwide coalition of nations under the Antichrist will one day gather in this valley. Their sights are set on Jerusalem. Megiddo is just the staging ground. This is the warm-up for the battle of Jerusalem. According to Joel chapter 3 verse 2, God will draw the nations to the holy city of Jerusalem. Joel writes, I will also gather all nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. Or the Kidron Valley that runs right next to the Temple Mount, right there in the midst of Jerusalem. He says, and I will enter into judgment with them there on account of my people, my heritage Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations. They have divided up my land. And notice God's beef with the nations. They have divided my land. And they have no right to do so. What we call the Holy Land belongs to God. And he can give it to whomever he pleases. It's his land. And yet today, the United Nations, the world community pressures Israel Sadly, the United States pressures Israel to divide up the land that God gave them and give parcels to the Palestinians, even when their Arab neighbors have more than enough territory for the Palestinians to settle. 
Even Jerusalem is a divided city, east and west, and this angers the Almighty. Hostile troops will one day march into the Holy Land to fight for Jerusalem. But while camped near the mountain of Megiddo or Harmageddon, a strange, unexpected development occurs. Heaven opens and a new general appears. And verse 11 tells us, And behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True. This gives me goosebumps. The first time Jesus marched into the city of Jerusalem, he was on the back of a burrow, a beast of burden, a donkey. But he takes no donkey ride this time. He's on a white stallion. And don't mistake this horse for some ceremonial steed. This is a war horse that's ready to charge. This is a horse that's bred for battle. He's shaking his mane. He's stomping his hooves. Hot breath billows out of his nostrils. We're told of his rider. In righteousness, he judges and makes war. At his first entry into Jerusalem, Jesus rode on a donkey, a beast of burden. And it was fitting for Jesus had come in humility to serve, to bear our yoke. But not now. This time he comes to judge and make war. Hey, Jesus came the first time to save, but he'll come the second time to slaughter. Throughout the tribulation period, man has been called on to repent, but their rebellion has continued to swell and seethe, and now it's time to end the madness. You remember Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6 labels Jesus the Prince of Peace. But realize he gets that title only after he kills off all his enemies. When Jesus returns to this earth, he'll be coming to bust chops, take names, and start breaking kneecaps. Hey, Moses made a stunning statement in Exodus chapter 15, verse 3. There Moses said, the Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Isaiah 42, verse 13 tells us, the Lord shall go forth like a mighty man. He shall stir up his zeal like a man of war. He shall cry out, yes, shout aloud. He shall prevail against his enemies. You need to know the Prince of Peace is no pacifist. In 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 17, Paul speaks of the rapture of the church. That Jesus will come in the clouds for his church. That we'll be caught up to meet him in the air. And then in verse 18 of chapter 4, Paul adds, Comfort one another with these words. This great snatching away is certainly a comforting concept to you and me. But not the second coming. It should scare you straight. This is nothing comforting here. You want Jesus to be your Savior, not your judge. You want to love the lamb. Don't make war with the lion. On the day that Jesus returns, the Antichrist and his allies will muster a formidable force His armies will stretch across the floor of the theater. Their strategy is to oppose the true Christ. That's when heaven opens. God's gladiator appears, verse 12. His eyes are like a flame of fire. Look into his eyes. They're burning with passion. On his head were many crowns. At his first coming, only one crown adorned Jesus' brow. A crown of thorns. Now he wears royal diadems, many crowns. His head holds kingly crowns. And he had a name written that no one knew except himself. 
Maybe Jesus has his own combat name. He's got a name just for warfare like Red Baron or Top Gun, something like that. Jesus has got a fierce and menacing name. Verse 13 tells us, He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. Check this out. His robe has been dipped in blood. There is a corresponding passage, Isaiah chapter 63, verses 1 through 4. And there the prophet sees a man with blood-soaked garments. He's coming up from Basra to Jerusalem. Apparently, the battle for Jerusalem spills over into all of Israel. It goes as far south as Basra or the Dead Sea. And I love what this man says to Isaiah. I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Hey, this is none other than Jesus. Who else can claim to be mighty to save? And then Isaiah asks him about his red garments. He answers, I have trodden them in my anger and trampled them in my fury. Their blood is sprinkled upon my garments and I have stained all my robes. For the day of vengeance is in my heart and the year of my redeemed has come. You see, Isaiah and John both see the Savior with robes soaked in the blood of his enemies. At his first visit, Roman soldiers gambled for Jesus' bloody robe. But when he returns, his robes will be stained with the blood of the soldiers fighting for a revived Rome. Verse 14, And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. And who makes up this army? I suggest to you four battalions. First is the angelic guard. No doubt about it, they'll be there. Second, the Old Testament believers, Abraham and Isaac and David and Elijah and the rest of them. Third, the tribulation saints, those who were martyred for their stand for Christ in these last days. And the fourth battalion of the Lord's army, it'll blow your mind. Guess who it is? It's you and me. The church will also ride with Jesus. I know this. The Bible tells us, Jude 14 proclaims, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints, that's you and me, to execute judgment on all. Colossians 3 verse 4 tells us, When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Realize this will be the mother of all battles. Jesus in heaven's army faces off with Satan and his allies. Modern armies of all the nations of the world will be stretched out across Israel when a door will open in heaven and out gallops Jesus on the back of his war mount. And behind him, you and I and 10,000 of his saints come hooping and hollering. Man, I plan to ride right there behind Jesus. I'm going to be as close as I can. And you say, yes, Andy, but I don't even know how to ride a horse. Well, you better learn. Or maybe you'll just know. Imagine when the call comes to mount up. We'll pull ourselves out from praise. That's where we'll be. We'll pull ourselves away from the throne, away from the praise for a second or two, and we'll saddle up. The door will open, and we'll see a hostile battlefield before us. Missiles will launch. Surface-to-air zingers will sail past our heads. Explosions and sizzling sounds. And then suddenly you'll look down and you'll see a red dot of laser light right there on your shirt. You're a target. Oh, no. 
A rocket is locked on you. You're cooked. That's when something amazing will happen. Verse 15. And now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations. 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 8 predicts the defeat of the Antichrist. And I quote, Whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. Realize this, the dreaded beast and all his armies, they'll be torched with the Lord's breath and with his brightness. Talk about a case of halitosis. Jesus will have breath that kills. God's word will be like a sword that will strike the beast. The Antichrist is destroyed with the brightness of Jesus' coming. The intensity of Jesus' glory will melt the enemy army. It'll be a deadly case of sunburn for the enemy. And then he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. And here's an echo of Psalm 2. Jesus will forcibly stop all sinners. Think about this now. For God to be merciful to the storekeeper, he has to restrain the thief. This means that if sinners don't get saved and stop sinning, then the sinner has to be stopped. How can God be merciful if he doesn't stop the sinner? This means that Jesus will rule with a rod of iron. And as a result, the earth will be a safer, happier, more peaceful place. For he himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. Notice how Jesus takes this also personally. We're told he himself treads the winepress. You see, God sees all sin as a fist in his face. Understand, God takes sin seriously and personally. And in verse 16, he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written. Ancient warriors would decorate their faces and their limbs with body paint. It provided a menacing look. And here Jesus has a title scripted down his thigh. You can see it when he rides into battle, into the battlefield. It reads, King of kings and Lord of lords. You see, Revelation chapter 19 depicts Jesus not as baby Jesus or gentle Jesus or Jesus blessing children, or Jesus breaking bread. No, this is Jesus breaking the stiff necks of evildoers who won't stop sinning against God and man. If he is king, he has to take action one day. He can't, we can't, walk into the eternal state with people hell-bent on robbing and raping and cheating and swindling. That wouldn't be heaven. That would be hell. If you've seen that bumper sticker, visualize world peace, well, to really do so, visualize this. Jesus annihilates Satan and all who join in his rebellion. He retakes the reins of a runaway planet. He conquers his enemies. He establishes his kingdom and he enforces obedience to his sovereign will. Then and only then will we realize world peace. Verse 17 tells us, Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather together for the supper of the great God, 
that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. Here's an invitation to another supper. The church feasts at the marriage supper of the Lamb while the birds and vultures feast on the flesh of fallen men. Verse 19, And I saw the beast, the kings of the earth and their armies, gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Remember at the rapture, Jesus comes as a thief in the night. He surprises this evil world. No one expects him. But at his, at his second coming, the armies of the earth have rallied against him. The nations are now resisting his arrival. Imagine this. Earth will be squaring off with heaven one day. Mankind will be facing up with God. Pity the puny man. He doesn't know what he's doing. And then the beast was captured. And with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. And these two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. The demonic duo who, who had deceived and blackmailed the world are now thrown into hellfire. And this isn't Hades now. This isn't the temporary torment. This is Gehenna, or what the scripture refers to as the lake of fire. Jesus said that God created the lake of fire for the devil and his angels. Here are its first inhabitants, the beast and the false prophet. Chapter 19 closes. And the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. The war is finally over. Jesus has evicted the squatters and he has retaken possession of the planet that belongs to him. But he's torn the place to pieces in the process. We've been reading about it for many chapters now. And so now a reclamation begins. You see, here's the wonder of redemption. Everything that sin has damaged, Jesus will restore. Chapter 19 closes with the universe under new management. And in chapter 20, now that the king of the jungle controls the jungle, he turns it into a paradise. The earth is due for an extreme makeover. God begins by ridding us of our arch nemesis. Chapter 20 begins. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. The beast and the false prophet were thrown into the eternal lake of fire. But Satan is jailed where unbelievers are today in the bottomless pit. Verse 3 explains why. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. Apparently, God isn't through with Satan yet. He still has a use for him. And in verse 8, we'll find the explanation for his final purpose. But this brings up an interesting sidebar, doesn't it? Satan's existence, even his mischief, has always been at God's discretion. Not that God ever approves of the devil's specific acts. He doesn't. 
His evil grieves God's heart. Nevertheless, God has allowed Satan some latitude. God uses trials and temptations to strengthen our faith. And neither has any teeth without a tempter. At the end of the age, Satan must be released for a little while for the same reason he wreaks havoc today. He'll provide tests and trials in order for people to prove their faith. And notice, too, the duration of Satan's incarceration. A thousand years. In Latin, it's the term millennium. And you'll hear terms like the millennial reign of Christ or the millennial kingdom or just the millennium. The first word here in verse 1 then implies that these last days events are chronological. In Revelation 19, Jesus destroys the armies who oppose him. And then in chapter 20, verse 1, Satan is chained and Jesus sets up his kingdom on earth. And both are sustained for a period of a thousand years. And understand, Jesus won't just rule by himself. John writes in verse 4, And I saw thrones... And they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. You know that army that rode with Jesus from heaven? That army will now help him rule on earth. And again, that includes you, and it includes me, the church. But not just the church. He says, Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus, and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark, on their foreheads or on their hands. Believers martyred in the tribulation will also now serve in Jesus' administration. They were mocked and martyred for Jesus' sake. Now they'll sit on thrones and they'll help him rule the world. And then verse 4, And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. At his first coming, Jesus established his kingdom on earth spiritually. In the hearts of his followers... But in his model prayer, Jesus told us to pray this. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He also had in mind a physical, literal, earthly kingdom. And now this prayer that we've been praying over all these years is finally and fully answered. On the cross, Jesus redeemed or purchased planet earth. When he returns, he'll take possession. One day soon, our world will be under new management. Revelation 20 gives us only the duration of Jesus' kingdom, a thousand years. But there are a host of other Old Testament prophecies that provide us many other details about this millennial kingdom. For one, the earth's waters will be rejuvenated. Its vegetation replenished. The curse will be lifted. No more thorns and thistles. No more birth defects. There'll be a reduction in crime. No more animosity between man and animals. Isaiah 11 verse 6 tells us, The wolf shall also dwell with the lamb. No more ice storms and hurricanes and tornadoes. Nature will no longer be a destructive force. And, oh, we long for the day when there'll be no more war. Under Jesus' rule, there won't be. And there'll be a strange mix of people occupying the planet in this millennial kingdom. Mortal men will live alongside resurrected believers. That, that is you and me. There will be humans who will survive the tribulation. 
They'll continue to marry and reproduce. In fact, with improved conditions, they'll live longer. And it'll spawn a population explosion. And they'll be born sinners and need to be saved. They'll be saved as we are, by grace, through faith. Along with this population of mortals, the church, you and I, with the Old Testament and tribulation saints, will also live on planet earth. After we descend with Jesus at his second coming, we'll hang out here and help him rule. 2 Timothy 2 verse 12 promises, If we endure, we shall also reign with him. Remember Jesus' words in Luke 19? Well done, good servant, because you were faithful in a very little. Have authority over ten cities. Authority and government in his future kingdom is one of the rewards we'll receive for our current faithfulness. Hey, I'm serving the Lord the best I can right now. You know why? I'm hoping I'll get assigned a few tropical islands to rule over in the millennial kingdom. St. Lucia, a couple of places like that. Aruba, maybe. In the millennial kingdom, we'll live among the mortals here on earth. But according to 1 Corinthians 15, we'll have put on an immortal, incorruptible body. You see, at the rapture, we'll receive our resurrected bodies. Our bodies will have the same capacities Jesus had after his resurrection. And you recall how he would pop in and pop out on his disciples. You remember that? His body wasn't confined materially or spatially. The disciples thought he was a ghost until they touched him. Until they put their hand and felt the scars of his crucifixion. And you and I will have the same type of resurrected bodies. I like to say, we'll travel at the speed of desire. Want to go to Hawaii for the day? Boom, presto, we'll be there. John writes in verse 5. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. In John chapter 5 and verse 29, Jesus spoke of two resurrections. The first resurrection of life and then the resurrection of condemnation. Believers are raised to receive life. Unbelievers are resurrected to be judged. Both revelations are found here in Revelation chapter 20 verse 5. What the Lord didn't mention in chapter 5 is that a thousand years separates these two resurrections. The first resurrection begins with Jesus. The New Testament calls Jesus the first fruits of the resurrection. In other words, Jesus is the first of the first to overcome death, never to die again. But then the church will join in his resurrection at the rapture. We'll be raised up and receive new bodies. Followed by those who were martyred by the beast. They'll get resurrected at the end of the tribulation. The first resurrection comes in those three waves. The second resurrection, or here, the rest of the dead aren't resurrected until the thousand years ends. We'll see in verse 11, at the great white throne of judgment, the bottomless pit empties, and the rest of the dead appear before their maker to receive their permanent, final, fatal sentence. Here's the takeaway. Be part of the first resurrection, not the second. We're told, blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. 
In verse 7, the plot thickens. Now, when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison. And if you couldn't guess what he does, remember, Satan has been chained for 10 centuries now. He's had time to take a personal inventory. He has thought it all through. He's considered his mistakes, no doubt. If ever he wanted to take a, turn over a new leaf, this is it. But not hardly. As soon as he's released, he's right back to his lies and his rebellion and his sin. Like a hardcore criminal who refuses rehabilitation, as soon as he hits the streets again, Satan is out for revenge. Satan goes to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, combatants in an earlier war in Ezekiel. And he'll gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. You know, Martin Luther once gave Satan an interesting name. He once described Satan as God's ape. Satan is God's ape. Like the organ grinder's monkey, Satan exists for the master's purposes. Even Satan's rebellion plays into God's hands. He's God's puppet. He's on a string, you could say. Think of the cross, for example. I'm sure Satan relished the pain that he inflicted on Jesus. The beating, the nails, the rejection. He squealed with glee while all that happened. And yet it's by his stripes that we're healed. Jesus was bruised for our iniquities. He was wounded for our transgressions. At the cross, Satan played right into God's hands. In all this pain that he inflicted, he produced for us the payment that would settle our salvation. And here's another example of Satan unwittingly serving God's will. You see, for several decades now, the big debate in psychology has been between nature and nurture. Which is it? Which is the greater determinator of human behavior? Are our dysfunctions the result of a genetic defect? Or can they be traced to a deficient environment? You see, if my problem is me, then I have nobody to blame but myself. But if it's my environment, then I can blame everyone and everybody. This is why most people choose nurture. I'm a sinner because I had poor parents. Or I grew up on the wrong side of the tracks. Or I didn't have an education. Or I had evil friends. Or I couldn't find a job. Excuses, excuses. You see, but at the end of this thousand years, God steps into the debate. He ensures that no one walks off into an eternity in hell thinking that they have a legitimate excuse. Realize, for a thousand years now, mankind has existed in a perfect environment. Jesus is on the throne. The world is brand new. Peace and prosperity reign in all corners of the globe. People have been treated fairly and flawlessly. And yet the folks who populate the planet are still sinners at heart. Like men today, they're born with a sin nature. With Jesus on the throne, they have to live by the rules. And they're better for it. But they've only conformed to an external standard. They haven't been transformed by the Holy Spirit. These people need to be born again. And no one realizes it until Satan is let loose for a season. For all of a sudden, these people now are given a choice. The devil tempts them. 
who needs God. You can be your own God. Same temptations he gave to Adam and Eve. We've heard this all before. But the people in the kingdom age will be hearing it for the very first time. And it will strike a chord in their hearts. In their sinful hearts. It will inflame their rebellious nature that's been simmering inside. You see, even after a thousand years in a perfect world, the human race will still rebel. Why? Because it's in their nature to do so. Here God proves for all time that humans have sin in their heart. The old adage is true. Sinning doesn't make you a sinner. You sin because you are a sinner. Selfishness and rebellion are embedded in man's nature. And what happens at the end of the millennium proves that at the heart of man's problem is the problem in his heart. Mankind is a rebel by nature. Verse 9, And then they went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. This flimsy coup d'etat that dares to lay siege to Jesus' capital city. This is the final insurrection. How dare anyone attack Jesus after he's been so good to them? The revolt gets put down in short order. For fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. And now the instigator finally gets his due. Verse 10. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone. Where the beast and the false prophet are. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Remember Jesus said that the lake of fire wasn't made for man. It was created for Satan and his angels. And here Satan is sent. To his ultimate destination. Verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne. And him who sat on it. What an ominous sight this is. White. That's the color of holiness and purity. A throne. That speaks of authority. And great. That has the sound of permanence. I believe it's Jesus Christ that sits on this throne. We'll learn in verse 12. This is a throne of judgment. And a long list of people have stood in judgment of Jesus Christ. There was Caiaphas, the priest. And then there was King Herod. Then there was the Jewish Sanhedrin. Then Pontius Pilate. Then the Jewish mob that screamed out, crucify him. Now imagine each of those persons appearing at this throne to be judged by Jesus. Now the roles are reversed. Trust me. There'll be a lot of squirming going on. In fact, everyone who comes before the great white throne will be squirming. The reason people appear at this judgment is because they've rejected Jesus. They judge Jesus as unfit to follow. Now it's his turn to see how they stack up to God's righteousness. And it won't be pretty. For verse 11 tells us, Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. After a thousand years of renovations, God decides to ditch the earth and the heavens and start brand new. And why would God do that? Well, I don't pretend to know all his reasons. But perhaps he wants us to know that this world and all that's in it has simply been a stage. Do you realize that? That the stuff we valued has just been decoration and props. What's truly mattered all along are the things that last forever. 
2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10 tells us of this day in Revelation. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Physics teaches that like charges repel. You've stuck the like ends of two magnets together. You can't push them together. They push away from each other. And yet at the center of every atom is a cluster of bonded protons. That's a mystery. How does that happen? Scientists explain it with terms like the atomic blue. Or they talk of a God particle. Their explanations are vague at best. The Bible, on the other hand, is quite clear. Colossians chapter 1 verse 17 tells us that in Christ all things consist. It's Jesus who holds together the universe. And one day, he's just going to let go. And the elements will melt with fervent heat. Jesus is going to let go. And every nucleus of every atom will explode in a giant fission meltdown. And the material universe will be no more. All that will be left is man and his maker. And then suddenly, everyone in the bottomless pit, all unbelievers, every rebel who rejected God's salvation will find themselves standing there before Jesus Christ and answering for their decision. Verse 12 tells us, And I saw the dead, small and great, famous people, not so famous people, They'll all be judged by the same criteria. How did they measure up to the righteousness of a holy, sinless, perfect God? They're all standing before God. And books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. These books contain every deed that has ever been done. Everything will one day be exposed. Nothing will be hidden. Everyone who's rejected Jesus' work on their behalf is now judged by the deeds that they did and the merit that they mustered. You know, put it all together and you find four judgments in the scriptures. First, the cross, where our sin was judged. Second, the judgment seat of Christ, which is for believers. Our soul will be saved, but our service will one day be judged. Our motivations will be tried and we'll be rewarded accordingly. Third is the judgment of the nations. Matthew 25 tells us that nations are judged by how they treated Jesus and by how they treated the Jews, his brethren. And then fourth is the great white throne, this judgment here. It's not the colorful throne around which believers are gathered in chapter 4. This throne is stark white. It represents God's unapproachable holiness. Unbelievers will be tried here. Those that have rejected Jesus, beware. Remember, if you're in Christ, your sin was judged at the cross. You can breathe a sigh of relief. Your sin's already been judged. But according to verse 12, the people under scrutiny here are judged according to their works. The last thing I would ever want to have happen to me is to stand before God and be judged by my own works, by the merits of my good deeds. 
For who but Jesus lived a good enough life for a holy, sinless God? Isaiah 64 verse 6 tells us that in the sight of God, all our righteousness is as filthy rags. There's my good deeds for you. There's filthy rags in the sight of God. If judged according to my efforts, I'm in big trouble. That's why I'm resting, not in my works, but in the finished work of Jesus Christ upon the cross. Alleluia. See, God doesn't grade on the curve. He grades on the cross. Verse 13. The sea gave up the dead who were in it. And death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one, according to his works. Hades opens its hatches and unbelievers are tried before God. And nobody stands a chance. Even the best of the bunch will fail the test. Romans 3 verse 23 gives us a preview of the outcome. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now remember, Hades is like the county jail. It's sort of a temporary holding tank. It's where the spirits of unbelievers are today. Its punishment is sure, but it's not permanent. Gehenna, though, or the lake of fire, is the supermax prison. It's the final assignment. When you're judged lacking at the great white throne, you're sent to the lake, the lake of fire. And by the way, despite popular lore, there's no keg parties or wild orgies or beer buddies at the lake. There's only fire and brimstone and scorching regret. And thus, verse 14 reads, Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. Physical death is the first death, but the lake, eternal damnation, is the second death. And thus the old saying, born once, die twice. But born twice, die only once. Come to Jesus. Be born again. And you'll face only physical death. The first death is not the one that you have to fear. The second death is the lake of fire. And then chapter 20 closes. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. And I suppose then this is now the most important question that you and I will ever be asked. Is your name written in the book of life? Are you trusting in Jesus or are you trying to stand on your own? The stakes are really high. It's the river of life or it's the lake of fire. Where will you spend eternity? 